Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. Hello, hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us for another episode of the Hacking UI podcast, where we hack our way through design, development, and entrepreneurship. I'm Sagi Schreiber. And I'm David Tintner. We're your hosts, and today's show is the first time that we're explicitly covering this part of the product development process. Yeah, this is a great conversation with author and UX researcher Victor Yako, where we discuss how UX research fits into the flow, what it takes to create a really good experience, and some deep analysis of user psychology, which he covers in his brand new book, Design for the Mind. I especially enjoyed this conversation because I come from a startup background, and like many of you, I imagine, I've never had the chance to work with a dedicated UX researcher as part of the everyday workflow. Yeah, I actually haven't either, and I think that there are definitely some gems in this conversation that shine a new light on user psychology and UX. So, D, you ready? Ladies and gents, we bring you Victor Yako. Let's get hacking! So we are here with Victor Yako. Thank you very, very, very much for joining us today, Victor. How's it going? It's going great, David. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Hi to all the hacking UI listeners. <laughs> Definitely. So, Victor, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us your background. Sure. So I started out doing research on visitors to zoos and science centers. My background is really in psychology and communication. And that's what I went to school and studied. I got my PhD and my research was all about how do people learn in these settings and these experiences that they have where they're encountering information in a zoo, say around a zoo exhibit or something like that, and they're supposed to learn more. Well, you have to talk to people. You have to develop studies where you observe people and see how they interact with their environment. Well, then fast forward five or 10 years and suddenly there was an opportunity for me to take a job at a digital design firm doing research. And I was like, well, I have no idea what digital design is, but I know all about research with people. And that's really where things gelled for me. I started working uh, at, at Intuitive, this design firm in Philadelphia, and things just really made sense to me, even though people were interacting with digital platforms and, and through digital medium, no longer the physical space of like a zoo or a science center, I saw all the psychology and all the communication that I had studied coming out into play like, oh, people want to feel like they're in control of their experience. That's a very psychological principle, a, a very core psychological principle is that people like to feel control. And when you have a poorly designed website or a poorly designed payment portal, the first thing people feel like is, whoa, I don't feel like I'm in control of this experience. And that's a bad thing. And so I started writing and talking about it. And really, it's led up to this point where I was telling you this week, my book, Design for the Mind, was released. And, and that's something that I sort of never thought was going to happen in that area. Like I never expected, oh, I'll come in and do research around digital design as a UX researcher. And then I'll write about it and write enough that I'll have a book to put out. Very cool. So just to get this clear, so you had no design background at all before you were hired at, at Intuitive? Yes. No. <laughs> yes, Intuitive. No, I didn't have a design background in, in any meaningful way. You know, I my focus was all on people and communication. And so the, the greatest 
part of design prior to coming here would have been more around like physical designing, physical spaces, like the, the exhibit spaces in zoos and science centers. So I was able to bring that into my current experience. But yeah, like I didn't have any experience with visual design or graphic design. Very cool. So tell us, okay, so what was it like when you first started working in digital design and graphic design? And what were the, you know, you saw a lot of the similarities from the physical world, but what were some of the biggest differences? Well, I had no idea what a lot of the terminology was. So when people, like, I don't know if we realize it once we've been in the field for a while, or if you sort of went to school for interaction design, we use so many things like hierarchy and navigation and terms that seem to just roll off your tongue. And now, of course, they do for me as well. But I was I was like on Google constantly during meetings like, okay, what does main navigation mean? What is a hero <laughs> image? And so that was where my shortcoming was. Like my strength was very much in research, in working with people. But my weakness was I didn't know what these design principles actually were. And so that's what I was able to fortunately pick up pretty quickly. And then I think that as that happened, that's when I made the connection was that, oh, we're talking about very similar things. You know, a main navigation for a website is maybe the same thing as a, a really good label on what type of exhibit space is you're going into. So there's the African featured exhibits, there's the Asian featured exhibits, that that might be main navigation categories for a zoo, whereas on a website, it's going to be like mobile payment center and FAQs. And so I started to make that connection and then also then see how important it is that we account for psychology and these experiences online. It's really cool to hear because I think it's kind of the opposite direction that most designers and uh, people in the field come from. You're coming from totally the opposite way, having the experience of psychology, understanding people, understanding the physical world, and learning how to apply that technically. Yeah. So I think this is, a, it's as I know at least, it seems pretty rare in our field and it, it seems like it could be a huge advantage. Well, I like to think so. You know, when I was first, I was immersed because I wasn't hired in as a junior staffer and... I was supposed to be up and running on my own. So I was just sitting in meetings. And, and like I said, I was sort of looking up the terminology and not understanding the mechanics of what a wireframe was and how you sort of go from throughout the design process. But I really did understand, okay, how do we put together an interview where we want to understand what people's needs are around this product? How do we design a contextual inquiry where we're going to go in and watch people, how they exist in their current situation and what products and tools they use. And so for me, that's what I brought to the table. But yeah, it took a lot of studying to get comfortable. And then the fun part too, in a weird way, is that Intuitive is a consulting agency, so we don't have our own product. I would have to learn banking terminology one day and healthcare terminology the next day. And eventually you find yourself using so many different acronyms that, that it's all, all just a bunch of letters and numbers that, you're, that are coming out of your mouth. But you start to understand them and you're like, oh, wow. But I've also been a part of a professional organization here in the Philly area. And I know that some people who are wanting to transition into UX and into design careers also say – a lot of this stuff feels like jargon when you first start working in the field. And so I think it's nice to remember if you're in a more senior position or if you've grown up in design that when you say things, even as simple as navigation or UI or IA or architecture, that people don't necessarily know, especially if you're working with a client who maybe their background is all in banking, that we sometimes need to really build people up with a basic understanding of what we're talking about. Definitely. Definitely. So today, can you talk about the UX researcher role as you see it and exactly what is going on on a day-to-day -day basis, how you can get the most out of it and what you know a UX researcher should be bringing to the rest of the team? Sure. And I wrote an article a couple years back for Boxes and Arrows on, on just that. I called it, I think, user researcher uh, or UX researcher user guide or a user manual thinking along the lines of trying to draw an analogy to like a user manual for a car, like how to get the best out of your product. And it's a great title. Actually, I saw this article and immediately thought about that because I think of 
a UX researcher is, you know, at least I'm coming from a, a startup world where smaller companies where usually they don't have a UX researcher and they want someone else to play this role. They want the designer or they want the product manager to kind of fill this role until they can finally hire one. But after reading your article and talking to you a little bit, I think that this is not a role that you can just say someone else needs to play. This is totally its own position. And can you kind of enlighten us a little bit about how you see that fitting in on the team? Sure. And that has been strongly impacted by the position I came in with. And the place that I started working for, Intuitive, they had the luxury. Well, they didn't, it wasn't even a luxury. They made it having research as part of their model being something separate. They didn't ask their designers to also go out and conduct interviews. And so it's always been this cross-disciplinary thing. And I think it's really important because as a researcher, you have training in certain things. You know how to design studies and you get that experience either through school or through on-the-job training that you know which questions need to be aligned with certain methods. It's not, oh, I just always want to interview people or I always want to do usability testing. It's when is that appropriate? And so that's why I think that having someone dedicated to research is really important because they're going to have this experience and this insight. But I also think if you're going to offer a position as a researcher and only ask somebody to engage in those types of tasks, you have the right to ask a lot out of that person. And that was part Mm -hmm. of the point of my article as well, which was saying, you have, you might have this resource and there's a really good way to utilize it. Researchers, people who tend to be involved in research really like to think about problems, think about questions. And what they tend to do is generate more questions. So they'll do research, collect some data, analyze the data and say, oh, well, I've solved some things, but here are six more questions that I have about get, cracking this nut. And so Understanding how your researcher might think and what types of developmental, professional developmental opportunities they want is going to go a long way towards making sure that they're happy. But then on the other side, you should feel like I have this person that I can trust to give me insight around my product. I can trust that they're going to take this knowledge that we learned working with our banking client and they're going to understand how it might be applicable to our healthcare client and they're going to work and learn the language of my designers so that when we're in these meetings and when we're wireframing and building out a product and designing the workflows, the researcher is going to play a really active role giving insight from their experience and then also hopefully using data that will be collected from actual users or potential users of the product. And so I think a researcher should be expected to be on multiple projects and be able to really provide this sort of bridge or sort of an ambassador among the different disciplines that exist in UX. Can you walk us through the kind of workflow and where the UX researcher fits in? You know, before you're planning out a project and you're researching it and then it's going to the to back to the product manager or to the designer or how it's happening after something's already been built and you want to get feedback on it. Walk us through that flow and where they fit in. Sure, David. That's a great question because it's like, I think there's opportunities for research to be fit in at all the different points. Of course, I'm biased. I'm a researcher, so I want it to be involved everywhere. But when you're in the beginning and you're in this fledgling state of what should my product be, what you're trying to define, most products come about, maybe all products come about to try to solve a problem. So you need to define what is that problem? Do people need to bank better? Do they need to apply for going to college better? And and so having a researcher with the ability to develop questions and different research methodologies to answer that question of what is the need and how is it being currently met? Where are the shortcomings in that method? I think research up front is really critical And then once you start designing, you can start doing things like usability testing with even as simple as like black and white wireframes that have just the different functions and workflows laid out. You can start putting those in front of people. And, you know, I advocate a researcher for that because they're not the designer. They're not going to be as sensitive around the topic. Hopefully, they will be really good at just letting people go about their business and not asking leading questions that get the right answer in their minds. Those damn sensitive designers. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, I love designers. Let me tell you, I love my job and I love working with designers. And I understand, like, as a writer, I totally understand how 
having your work critiqued by people who, especially people you feel are very novice, can be really just like, why would I want to expose myself to that? But at the same time, what I really admire about the designers I work with and, and the ones that I see on a day-to-day basis, even if they're not you know, my direct colleagues, is that they're very focused on the goal of solving a problem and designing a solution. And so therefore, when they get to the point where something is going to be released into the real world, they want to have already incorporated feedback from people. They want to have had a chance to try to get some insight into where maybe an incorrect assumption was made or people aren't going to find an experience to be as straightforward as we assumed. And, and so, you know, in the end, most designers and, and all that I've met have been very open to the process of, of putting their work in front of people. But again, I totally understand when you want to just like bang your head on a desk and be like, the button is right there. The one that you said doesn't <laughs> exist. It's right in front of you. Your cursor is hovering on it. <laughs> Definitely happens. Yeah, I think one of the hard parts for designers about getting feedback and getting criticism is that when they show a final design, they don't necessarily have – it's hard for the person they're, they're giving this to to see everything that led up to it and see that it wasn't just uh, you know that this was not the first thing. There was tons of thought that went into it. It's not just this flat design you're looking at the final outcome. So can you give me some tips about uh, – You must have tons of tips about giving feedback to designers and giving criticism, especially from a UX research perspective, based on data or anything that can kind of smooth that that workflow. Sure. Well, I would say that one thing is that always going in with the attitude of this is to create the best product and not really be super critical of your work. It's not about do I like your, your work. And so... One of the best things, though, is to have a relationship where you're doing more than just critiquing, right? I work closely with my designers, and whether or not you have to be friends with them is not what I'm saying. But when you have a relationship with somebody and all you're doing is critiquing them, like in a meeting, that that can start to feel, you know, if they'll shut down or not be open to your suggestions because they think all you do is critique. So you have to complement that with friendly conversation with also telling them what they're doing right and saying, you know, this worked really great. Here are two things that we could maybe improve on. And so really couching it in language around improving and not, oh, you didn't do this right. And I also like to talk about opportunity. And I guess I do that with clients as well as designers, but saying this worked pretty good, but here's some opportunities. And then trying to get them to think of it again, because every designer I know loves a challenge to think of it as a challenge. Okay, you thought this might work. It didn't seem like it when we took it out and tested it, but you know what? Now we have some real valuable insight. Based on this insight, what do you think might be a way of of working around this or setting this up? And so I also know that a lot of conferences that I've gone to lately have had some sessions around design critique. And I know that like here, where I work, our designers regularly engage in critique to the, to the point where it's scheduled. And, and so that way, I think you start to expect it and it can start to be, feel less abrasive if somebody is critiquing your work, but you're like, okay, well, I'm also going to have a chance to critique my colleagues. And I know that this is something that that's supposed to be for my growth. I think it's a really important area though. And I, what about you as a designer in terms of how have you found it to be to get – are there certain ways of approaching you that make you feel more or less open to being critiqued? Well, actually, I'm coming at it from the development side. Okay. When I'm approaching Sigi, definitely this is something that we deal with a lot. You know, Sigi is usually making a design and then I'm going and developing it. And, mm-hmm. and it's something we've, – we've been working together for a long time and trying to build this repertoire of how to critique – but there's still times where, you know, he comes up with a design and I just say, you idiot, this is all wrong. You don't know what you're doing, you know. And we we definitely, I think uh, it's not an easy process to give someone constructive criticism, especially on design, from all angles. It's something that definitely has to be, like you said, build a, a relationship over time, look at it from an opportunity perspective and not just from, a, you know, I'm right, you're wrong and really work on it. But I think that the UX researcher is really just an interesting role that can come at it from a totally different perspective than than a developer or a product manager. You kind of have everyone on the team, as much as we like to be unbiased and we're all a team a tri- a trying to achieve 
the same goal of building the best product at the end of the day, everyone does have their bias. You know, if the designer wants something super complicated done that it just, you know, doesn't fit the way that you've already coded the, you know, the system, the developer does have a bias to, to maybe be against that kind of thing, or the product manager has some bias. So I think that the UX researcher is kind of interesting coming at it from, from potentially the least amount of bias as possible of the other roles on the team. You say that's, that's correct? Yeah, I would say that that's a really important piece to it, which is so many times we find ourselves in meetings and the product owner will say one thing, the designer will say the other thing. And it's a lot of times it's a guess like, oh, well, I think people will like this or I don't think people would like this. And it's like, well, okay, great. My role is to put that into a question for our next round of usability testing. Or you don't think people currently behave like that? Let's find out by I'll go observe some people on the job. And so, yeah, I get to in a non-biased way in that I'm just wanting to collect data and then say, okay, here's what I saw. And then turn that into recommendations for the designers. But yeah, if it's something where people truly are struggling or if something's working just fine, there's no reason for me to put a spin on it in any other way. So give me some uh, some kind of techniques that you have for collecting this data. What are some of the, I don't know, experiments you're running, surveys you're creating, and any other techniques that you're using? Sure. One of the things that I really do frequently, it seems, is, is interviews. And a, a lot of that is to try to get high amounts of information with smaller sample sizes because we don't always have the luxury of a ton of time on our projects. And so it's like you want to talk to as many people as possible, but you have two weeks to do it. And so how do you go about setting up something where you're going to find valuable feedback and I've found interviewing to be really valuable because you start to build a rapport with people and you don't just have this survey that's out there for a few days that maybe people will respond to or maybe they won't. And also it depends. So I would go back and, and initially I would say the answer, the method is always going to depend on the question being asked. So if somebody is asking, how does this currently work? I might think about doing some usability testing so that I can put a product in front of people and say, okay, here's where people are struggling. Here's where things are working wonderfully. If the question is, what are people currently doing to do their online banking while also you know, shopping and sitting at work? I might say, okay, that sounds like something that would be answered by contextual inquiry because I want to go into a setting where people are doing these things and actually see how they're going about accomplishing this. Are they doing manual tasks while also working on their computer? Are they going from room to room? Are they making phone calls because they have to bring other people into the conversation? I want to see all that because a lot of times people's memories and recollections aren't necessarily accurate. So if I'm just interviewing somebody and I say, you know, how many times did you make a phone call while you were checking your email yesterday? You might say one, you might say 10, you might actually be somewhere in the middle. But if I watch you and I record it, then I can have a pretty accurate depiction of and an understanding of what you go through on a daily basis. So I love contextual inquiry because it's really like going into the setting and seeing how people function. And then there's UX assessment, which is where you go in and look at the property and you have like a set criteria and you try to grade it. And that's something where you have to really build up your experience to be, I think, super proficient at it because a lot of what you end up doing is falling back on what are best practices that I'm familiar with that I've seen work in the past. Does this property have some of these characteristics or does it seem to be lacking in a lot of these areas? And what would I recommend to to improve that? I don't know. There's there's a handful of methods that I would say I use much more frequently than others. There's things like eye tracking that I don't get to do very often, but I see value in trying to understand, you know, where are people looking on a screen, what information catches their eyes. Let's take like the method of like uh, doing uh, the user interviews. Mm -hmm. So say you, you have something specific that you know, okay, we want to, I don't know, dive into usability of a certain page or maybe a sign up flow. And then you say, okay, the way that we're going to do this, we're, we've decided we're going to do you know, interviews on this. Mm -hmm. How are you – take us through that. Like exactly what can someone do if they want to replicate the process? Okay. Well, I would depend on what your product is. A lot of times, again, I work with clients. And so 
what the first thing you want to define is what your question is. And so let's say it's how do people currently use this homepage, like you were saying, or how do people currently use this website? And you've decided interviews is the best way to go about that. You want to figure out who do you want to interview? Do you want it to be like power users? Do you want it to be people who have never seen the site? Do you want to mix? Do you want it to be people that use the site for certain reasons, but not others. And so what you do is you create what we call a screener. And that's what you use to screen in and out participants. So is there an age range for some reason? Do you feel like that impacts who your interview participants are going to be? Are there certain jobs? Like, you know, a lot of times we'll say, well, if we're going to be doing a study on a pharmaceutical website, we don't want to include people that work in the pharmaceutical industry. So you need to think of all the characteristics of the people that you want to be in the interviews and then create a screener for that. And then you actually need to find how you're going to interview these people. A lot of the times we'll go through and use a third party to recruit. Or if it's a client who, let's say, we're working with a financial organization that has like sells stocks and bonds and and does financial services for their customers, we'll need them to put us in touch with a pool of customers that we'll be able to recruit from to say, if you meet these characteristics, we'd like to interview you. And then from there, you actually can schedule the interviews. And a lot of times, if we're trying to do a lot of people in a short period of time, you know, 20, 30, 40 people in a couple of weeks, we make the interviews remote. We do it over the phone because that removes the added time and expense of traveling. And we can screen share and do video and audio chatting just as easily as being in person. I always do prefer to be in person, but it's not always something that we have the luxury and the budget for doing. But so, yeah, you want to make sure you screen for the right people that you want to interview. Then while you do that, you also need to be working on your actual script. It's always good, even if you're going to have sort of this free-flowing interview style, it's always nice to have the questions that you want to ask critically in front of you to make sure that you cover them. And there's there's definitely different takes on that. You know, Some people will go in with a script and they won't stray from it. Some people will go in and they'll say, here are the questions I want to ask. They might come up in different order based on what the, how the discussion goes. Then you can also just have like a general open interview where you completely want to learn from the perspective of the person and you don't make any assumptions. That's a little more difficult to have it completely unstructured because you don't necessarily know where you're going to go and if your time is going to be spent well. So... I think this is something that, you know, as you're talking about, it's not something like something all of us want to do with every new product we're releasing or launching. We, of course, want to do this stuff, but it doesn't sound cheap. No. From, first of all, from a financial perspective, but also from the aspect of how much time it takes. So can you give us a general ballpark figure? How much does something like this cost to do? Um, that's a good question. I guess it varies. And so in terms of using a third party to recruit and setting everything up, Hmm. I guess it would probably be around the $10,000 range to do a project where you're paying a third party to recruit them and you're paying, I guess that's not going to include the salary of the researcher, but for all the logistics associated with that. The study itself. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess that can be pricey, but there's also, if you're familiar with the term like guerrilla research, there's people who advocate this more quick and dirty method, which you don't necessarily have the luxury of screening people out when you engage in guerrilla research, but you're doing it like in a public setting and you're hopefully going to get people who are involved in a way that you want them to be. So for example, if you were testing a banking application, you might stand outside of a bank and try to intercept people and ask them if they are willing to spend five minutes with you. And that's a quicker, dirtier way of doing it. And certainly... I think the expense piece that you mentioned and also the time piece is why UX research and research in general isn't necessarily always a part of the project because it's really hard to make that justification. Okay, I'm going to dedicate budget to this research or spend time doing research while other things are being held off while because the research is going to inform their design and development. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. So 
let's say you're doing a, a really large research study for a client. Mm-hmm. From whose side is that request? Is that the client specifically is asking for that? Or is that something that you guys have identified that in order for you to do this project correctly, we have to allocate the time and the, the money for it? Which side is it coming from? Typically, it's our side saying this is how we work. We, If we were going to have an ideal relationship, we're going to start off with what we call like a research and strategy phase. And the thing about that is it doesn't have to take months. It doesn't have to add so much time that you feel like your product is never going to actually start having its work done on it. We can schedule some things and within the period of a couple of weeks, start getting data and designers can start designing And we can work iteratively with them as we start to get more information and inform the design. Because I think that when we've had clients say, whoa, no thank you to the research piece is when they're very nervous that it is going to slow things down. It's not that they don't see the value in the research, but it's there on certain timelines. They have releases that are scheduled and they know when one's coming up that they can't fall behind on getting their design into production. And so it's really, it's learning to work at a pace that is pretty fast for a researcher. And I talk about that in my article as well, about if you are a researcher whose background is in academia and you went to school and you were surrounded by academics, those research projects that you're doing take two, three, sometimes four or five years you will never have that luxury when you're working with the private industry. There will be no mm-hmm. place that says it's acceptable to take even six months to do a research project. You have to learn to work at a breakneck pace for what would be considered an academic researcher's schedule. Definitely, definitely. I was going to say in the environments I've worked in, the UX research phase has been cut down to you know, a matter of days, mm-hmm. if that. And sometimes you're lucky if you even have those days. And uh, a lot of times it's actually done, like you said, very iteratively. But do you see any disadvantages to, to working that way or, is, or and not preparing beforehand? Do you lose something when you're only kind of delivering the research and, and the results after the project has already started? Yeah, people start to feel invested in the design immediately. And so then if you find – if you uncover something where you feel like, oh, wait, maybe we want to think about taking this in a little bit of a different direction – you encounter an argument versus starting with a clean slate and just saying, okay, here's what we saw and we don't have anything already down that road. And, you know, I can give you like real life examples where we make assumptions and we say, okay, here is the kind of tool people are going to want to solve this problem. Like, oh, people are going to want this website in order to sell this product because they'll be able to sit down with their potential clients and show them this website and then you, you start to make that assumption and then all of a sudden you find out, well, hey, actually where they place value is the ability to interact without a computer in front of them while they're on site with a client. And so we need to think about how we deliver this this tool or this service that they can sell using not a website, but but something completely different. And it's like, okay, but we thought this was going to solve all our problems. Oftentimes you'll find that like a product manager or somebody who's at an executive level has a vision for something and you have to come in and say, well, that's not necessarily what your client's visions are or what your customer's visions are. So like... um, Break the news to them softly. (laughs) Yeah. And and that can be very difficult when that ball is already rolling. You don't want to say, well, actually, we might want to take a look at somewhere else. Nobody wants to be the guy that says, well, actually about anything. But when it's being informed by research, you really want that to play a role. And so if you can get that up front before people start feeling super invested in the direction you're heading. So yes, the answer to your question is there are disadvantages to that. I think the advantages are that you try to show the value of research because people can continuously put it off. And then when you get two years down the road and they say, well, why doesn't this work the way we wanted it to? And you, you all you can say is, well, we spent the last two years making assumptions. And then now that people are using it, we, we made a few guesses that were wrong. And uh, so how can you get ahead of doing something like that is, is really important. It'll save you time and money in the long run. So, okay, let's say like a scenario here. Let's say this is, you know, you have a small startup 
that doesn't have a dedicated UX researcher on the team, but they appreciate the value of it and, and also they don't have a large budget. Give me like kind of the hack it out, most value for money kind of method you could say before you're building a product to, or as you're building a product to kind of do the UX research and get the most out of it. Well, and depending on how you feel about getting out in public and doing things, I would say you really need to try to put it in front of people who are not your peers. Whatever whatever it is you're creating and at whatever stage you feel comfortable doing that, try to get it in front of some people who don't know who you are or what you're trying to accomplish and will give you some unbiased feedback. And whether that means standing around outside at a coffee shop and offering to buy people their coffee if they spend 10 minutes with you, just getting it in front of people. When I've worked with designers who aren't used to having research as part of the process, even when we have quick interactions with potential users that they get feedback on, the light bulb that goes off is really amazing. It's like there's very little that compares to getting feedback from somebody who doesn't have any investment in your product and hearing them what they say. And, you know, it could be good, it could be bad, or it could be just right in the middle. And what they say matters in that it can help you in your thinking and it helps inform decisions. I don't advocate that you only talk to two people and then everything they say should be what you run off with and do. I And that's actually why I like psychology so much because I think that even if you don't have the luxury of including a whole bunch of information from users and from research, the psychology piece can help inform the design as well because there's been a lot of research done around psychology and how people do things that we can then apply. And that's the little space that I've made myself comfortable writing in, which is taking a look at the academic side and the research and saying, this is great, but it's not written in a way that really makes it easily applied by a practitioner, here's what I think these psychological principles would look like in real life and why they would be meaningful to you as a designer. And so translating that and making it useful can become another tool along with data from users, along with all the experience and training that designers and design team members have to make sure that you're trying to account for what the user's needs will be. Can you give me a couple of those principles that you find uh, most designers don't know or don't apply until you've you've discussed with them or shown to them that they can apply to that situation? Sure. So something that is pretty easy is around what is called framing communication. And it's thinking about what are the information needs of your users and then how to actually apply different ways of saying what is essentially the same thing, but in a way that makes it meaningful to somebody. So let's say you have a certain set of users and there's a topic that's really important to them and around why they should be using your product. How are you communicating with them in a way that immediately makes your product relevant to their lives? And then Taking that and making it so that, say, it's something where people have information on their profile, where you can actually then generate messages based on what it is that that their interests are or their background is, and then tweaking that so that other people who have different interests are going to get basically the same message, prompting them to use your product or prompting them to enroll in something or make a certain action but it's going to be framed in a different way to try to inspire them to engage in that behavior. And what that does is it's not tricking people or lying to them. It's saying, I acknowledge that everybody has, everybody needs to understand why something is relevant to them. And so how you present it will make a huge impact into them understanding why it's relevant. And from there, they're going to actually pay closer attention to what it is your product does and determine whether it meets their needs. And so thinking hard about how we frame communication is one way of doing that, that I found to be rewarding in a way, because to see how people start to then think about the needs, the information needs of their users. And so like, do we design something that has a very friendly and open feel to it and tone 
is that what our users are looking for? Or is it something that we need very serious and structured and provides them with reassurance that like your money is safe here kind of feel to it? And experimenting with that to see what types of users respond in different ways um, is, is something from psychology that I think doesn't necessarily seem like when you're designing something that you instantly think of, well, how will different users perceive this? And, and really trying to think about the fact that not everybody is the same in how they'll perceive communication, whether it's visual or words or audio. Okay, definitely. I actually, I really liked your article using heuristics to uh, increase uh, use of your product. Okay. There was a really well written, by the way, everyone should definitely check this out on uh, Smashing Mag, right? Yes. I think. Well, thank you, David. And, I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> no, really excellent, excellent article. Because what you did there was you took all of the different psychological principles and kind of gave the real world application of them and then brought them to the digital world. I really liked, uh, maybe you'll explain, like you talked about the, uh, is it default theory? Or uh, the the default effect, yeah. Default effect, that's right. Yeah. This was really interesting to me. Right. So it's like people instantly think of – the thing that comes to mind first is what people think is the best answer. And so a heuristic is a mental shortcut, and I, I have a chapter in my book that talks about heuristics as well, but this article from Smashing covered different heuristics. Researchers have looked at like 20 or 30 different heuristics to try to understand – how do people make decisions? And something that we know is people are constantly making decisions. You have hundreds, if not thousands of decisions you make in a day, so many that you don't even pay attention to most of them, you know, what you're going to wear in the morning, what you're going to eat in the morning. And so the, the default effects is that what people see in terms of default settings, they're not going to change. And what that means is when you put something out for your users, they are going to assume you had the best intentions in mind. And what, that might not even be a conscious assumption, but it's like they don't think about what the settings are. And so we saw this. There was a study that was done like in the 90s around people who had – sent in their their files for Word documents. And this was done by Jared Spool, who is a very highly regarded UX researcher and also designer. And uh, he found that most people hadn't changed their default setting to have the autosave feature on. And when they went back and, and asked users why, it's because they thought that Microsoft had their best intentions in mind, and so they had not set the autosave to being automatically on, so why would they mess with it? And then he knew people at Microsoft, and he asked them the same thing, like, well, why was your default setting to have autosave off? And it wasn't that they had the user's best intention in mind, it was that that was the easiest thing to program, you just did like all <laughs> zeros. And so there, there was a complete disconnect there, which was the user was thinking, oh, Microsoft knows what they're doing. And Microsoft was thinking, this is really easy. This is the easiest way to ship a product. And what it points I'm thinking that if the users wanted to, they can change it. I think it's exactly that, that we're probably all guilty of, you know, even on a smaller scale, but it sounds like there can be a few quick wins, if you will, in our products that we can do sometimes just by changing default settings or just by actually having the user's best interest in mind from the beginning and not necessarily thinking that your interface is so simple that they'll change it or they'll adjust it, just giving them what they need from the beginning. Yeah, and I strongly advocate that – so if you, you – you don't – you'll never be able to guess what every user wants default right out of the package – but you can make some assumptions around things like the autosave and saying that most people are probably going to want their work to be saved at least every now and then. But also, I think it points to having a good onboarding experience where you show people, here are some things that are, that are set by default and you might want to consider changing them because most people, if they can dive right in and understand how to use a product, they're not going to start digging around into the preferences and the settings. So like I point out, I think in the article, I talk about Slack being something that does a good job at showing you, oh, hey, 
you're getting these messages right now. Like when people send you a message, you get the message pops up on your screen. And I think after it does that a couple times out of the box, it, it then it says, do you know you're getting this message because that's how your default's set? You might want to click here and, and adjust your defaults. And so that's really, instead of somebody saying, why am I getting this damn annoying pop-up every time? I get a message on Slack and it happens for three years straight and they just think that's what they have to live with. It's like, okay, you've gotten this message. Some people find it helpful, but maybe you don't. Do you know if you click here, there's other options for how you could have this set? And so I think it's good to provide that kind of guidance to users. And also in general, just thinking like designers and developers very often are the ones who want to tinker with things. But Joe, average Joe, average Jill on the street, they just want it to work and they want it to be fast and they can get on with the next thing. And so they're not necessarily going to dig around in the defaults and change things. Definitely. I really like that, actually, that uh, Slack experience. I noticed that exactly when I joined, too, and was was in there and saying, oh, it's so simple. This is how you adjust the channel settings. You know, I have one channel that I want it to be a certain way, one channel that I want that's I don't need the notifications on every message. And it's so true that they actually use the wording. These are the default settings. Here's how you adjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's very simple. smart on their end to do that. So I want to I want to change kind of the flow a little bit onto you a little bit more. Okay. I want to ask you, so we did a design salary survey a few months ago. And one thing we, we realized from our readers is most people are designers, followed by developers, followed by product managers. And there were actually very few UX researchers that at least completed our survey. And we hope that that's somewhat representative of the industry. Uh-huh. Obviously, you know, biased towards our audience, but somewhat representative of the industry that there are not that many UX researchers out there. So tell me, like, what kind of advice do you have for someone who wants to become a UX researcher, wants to advance in that direction in their career? Good luck. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, I get that question quite a bit. I'd say a few times a month, somebody reaches out to me and says, hey, I'm interested in being a UX researcher, what do I need to do? And my first piece of advice based on my experience is you need to know people. You need to do everything you can to be involved in studies or interact with people. And it's hard to put that on a resume, but the more experience you have with products where you have not been shuttered behind closed doors, but you've actually been out and you've had to talk to people and you've had to learn how to deal with all kinds of people with varying opinions. I think that's a really valuable skill to have is just the ability to negotiate and to talk to people and understand that some people are very outgoing. Some people are very reserved. Some people look unfriendly, but they're really friendly when you start talking to them. And to just have these life experiences is really critical. And from The perspective of where I work, we look for what I'd call a social science background, so degrees or training in things like anthropology, sociology, human-computer interaction, things that have typically been more soft science, um, psychology as well, that people develop a lot of the methodological training that we use. So how to conduct interviews, how to build a survey that's going to be administered to people either online or in person, how to observe and take notes really well, and then also how to turn that data into recommendations or analyze it to create strong themes. You know, I don't always do research and then tell my designer, this button needs to be pink and located in the left-hand corner, I say, it looks like people are really struggling with this area and here are some of the reasons why. Let's think about a solution. And and you need to just get comfortable working with data to try to solve problems that will end up being owned by the designers and the design team and, and how they go about thinking a, a problem should be solved. So working together with other people. Okay. And just to give you some perspective here, with our survey, we found only 1.5% of our audience actually was UX researchers. So I think it's really interesting to give people an idea of how they can get into the field and not, and actually, and full on into UX research and not kind of this blend of a designer or product manager who happens to be doing that on the side. And that's a great, I think that your survey is fairly accurate then in terms of 
what I've seen. So when we have a job interview or we post a job, we'll get a lot of applicants who are designers that also do usability testing. And oftentimes we'll say, you know, we are really looking for someone who's pure research. And I, I guess the, the problem is there's not so many jobs out there. So it's like a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing when you have the job, but it's a bad thing if you're looking for one. I mean, I don't necessarily myself even have the capability of just looking next door and saying, well, if I want to leave where I'm at now, they'll have a job for a UX researcher. They will probably expect me to do a lot of different tasks as well around the design. And I'm not completely comfortable with that at, at this time because of my experience and the fact that I do have a pure research position at this point. So we do get a lot is, of people. Go ahead. Is it something that you see yourself getting more into? Like, Do you feel that because you don't have a design background, you're less able to kind of solve the problem? You're able to show what the problem is, but not solve it? Or it's not something you're interested in, you're interested in going even more into UX research? Well, I think that for my own personal interests, I'm definitely focused on the research piece and then the writing and talking about applying psychology to design. Like, I'm very happy in that space. I do think that, like, I would be able to wireframe out some some things. But as far as getting deeper into a more polished design, I'm not the person for that. I already know that. Like, I respect what designers do so much that, I would only make their lives worse if I was a, a considered a design colleague. But seriously, I think that for my interests and what I feel like my skill set is that I'm doing the right thing for me by focusing on research and that the design stuff I have learned and picked up while working closely with designers are, is something that more in my personal side, I find value to, or like if there was a need to do some quick wireframing, I would be comfortable doing that. But when it comes down to effectively utilizing resources, designers are much, much better at the, how they spend their time and the solutions they come up with quickly than I am. I would say, though, going back to your question, then also about getting into research, that that's going to be a problem when a lot of employers will put out a job and research is part of it, but they also want people to be able to design or they want them to be able to code. And I think that we really do have this, this mixed message that we send then around the value of research when we combine it like that. And I do advocate having a dedicated UX researcher or somebody who you bring in on projects as a paid contractor to do the UX research or the research because of what I feel like is necessary in terms of background and training and experience. I really think we have a new, you know, the classic debate going on right now in our industry is should designers code? Mm -hmm. And I really think we have a new one of these debates on our hands here. Should designers be doing UX research? I would be in willing to participate in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it's definitely, um, as you said, companies want to hire this kind of all-in-one person, but it is truly a field on its own. And, it, and from you know talking to you, I understand the depth of it. I'm only beginning to understand the depth of it and how much needs to be done there. Well, and I think that we have, where I work, a successful model of interdisciplinary research works with design, works with development, works with engagement. We all sort of function on these teams at really high level. And I think that's part of why it works is that we trust each other to take care of our own space, but we're also closely connected on these projects to where we know what's going on. The designers know what stage the research is in and what we're finding. They're welcome to join calls and testing sessions so that they have first-hand insight into what we're finding. And then I don't just do the research and go away. I stay and I say, you know, what can I do to keep helping moving things forward? What can I do to explain, you know, what, what I think these research findings mean to designing a feature or a concept? Why do you think that your, your company, I mean, it sounds, I got to say, it sounds different than many other companies now. Why do you think that they are putting such an emphasis on it on UX research and that they've given the time and the money and the, you know, the budget for it. What's different about your company? Why do they believe in it so strongly when other companies don't or don't allocate the budget? 
I think it's a basic philosophy of our principles when they founded the company that they knew they wanted to be user focused. And the way to do that was to always have somebody in touch with the actual user and that there wasn't going to be a realistic way to have designers out there constantly engaging in research and then expect them to come back and design everything and, and then, you know, have a meaningful work-life balance, but also balance between design and research and how do, where is that balance. And so having dedicated research staff has really been something that's been part of the philosophy when it was a four-person company and then when it was a you know 50-person company that it's something that's just been baked in from the beginning. And sometimes that's meant trying to sell a project where the research isn't there, but then having the researcher play a role anyway and try to show a client that in the long term, research would be a valuable thing to invest in as well. And, you know, I think that as a researcher, I have found myself very frequently having to justify my presence. And so I've started to somewhat get comfortable with that and to say, you know, I'm a researcher. I won't slow down the process. You, you'll see the value very quickly. And yeah, I don't literally have to say those words at the table, but I, I sort of do at times. And I do actually say I won't slow down the process because that's the look of, of horror I, I see sometimes in a client's yeah. eyes. Like, so how long is this going to take? And it's like, we're looking at days or weeks, not, not months and years. But the biggest holdup is oftentimes getting the client to get us access to the right people. Uh, and we were very upfront about that when we start new engagements that if we're if research is part of the upfront plan and we tell you that we need to have 30 people in two weeks, that means in two weeks that you have those two weeks to get us the 30 people that we need to talk to if that's how, how the plan is written up because we don't always have direct access to people depending on what our client's product is and, and what their sort of agreements are with non-disclosure amongst people that use their product. Where do you kind of cross lines with a BI analyst or how much are you doing, if any at all, getting into, you know, the user stats of uh, when it's a website or are there overlaps between the two? Are you doing this work? So I'm um, not sure necessarily. So with the term BI, what do you mean? Like a business uh, analyst? Like yeah, someone who's someone who's looking at you know Google Analytics stats. Okay. Someone who's looking at hard numbers and not you know interviewing people, not mm -hmm. going out and and finding like an individual. They're looking at patterns, gotcha. traffic, page visits. Are you doing? Mm -hmm. So I would look at that as something that's very complementary. It's not part of my role currently. We do have, and a lot of our clients will have people who are in charge of keeping track of their analytics, and I think that that's a really great value add. So. Let's say, for example, I find out through my interviews or through some usability testing that people are really struggling with a certain field in a form. I might go back then and ask the analytics person to say, like, how many people are dropping at this point in the workflow? Because then I have that to say, like, it, I saw people struggle here and look, you're losing 75% of your conversions because people stop at this field or this page on the form or, and, and then they navigate back to the FAQs and they don't seem to be able to f figure out how to move forward through this form. And, and if you tweaked it slightly, you might see an amazing amount of traffic getting through to completion. So there's, there's lots of opportunities around that. And like when people say something like, oh, this, this frustrates me. I always want to go back and look at analytics and ask, what change in traffic do we see at that point? Do we see people just leave the site? Do we see that people go somewhere else on the site? and Or do we see that they're constantly like struggling at that point? I think there's a lot of opportunity to learn using the background analytics, but it's not necessarily my role isn't to dig into the analytics. I mean, that's something that we could do, but it's usually not. It's oftentimes, okay, now I've looked at how people seem to be behaving. Do the analytics support this? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. 
Definitely. It sounds like there's a lot of cooperative stuff that can be done there. Definitely. Supporting you going down a path with research or if this one will if this study will be worth it or how much time to allocate to it based on, like you said, if 70% of people are dropping out, then I guess you'll be doing a more serious study to determine why. Yeah, and if, exactly. You, know, you find out they're barely losing money or it's only you know a, a small drop-off or something like that. Yeah, it can really help with prioritization and, and validating what you think you're finding on on the quantitative or the qualitative research side when you're doing interviews or something like that. Well, Victor, we've already passed an hour, and I feel like I, I can go on forever. But uh, I think we got to uh, wrap this up soon. Sounds good. Any things you want to share? I mean, you're writing. You just published your book, like you said, and I gotta say, I. Instantly, like we were talking about before we started uh, recording the podcast, I read a couple of your articles. I haven't read the book yet, but I definitely want to. And instantly after reading the articles, I saw this guy knows how to write. You know, really, all of your articles are so well written, so to the point, structured. So I imagine that the book will be of the same style. Well, I, I hope that then you find that that's the case. I certainly tried to use the same voice that I write my articles in. And I mean, thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate that. And something, but I, I really think you know anyone. I really, I really believe it. I think anyone who reads uh, an article you've written will notice it right away as well. So, tell us a little bit about the book. And sure, well, Design for the Mind. It's subtitles seven principle psychological seven. Whoa, <laughs> seven psychological principles of persuasive design. Sorry, I've only said it a million times uh, the last year. <laughs> but what I did was I took a lot of the content that I was writing articles about, and I thought, well, there's so much more here that I could explore. And so it's not just rehashing the articles in, that I've written in any way. It's new psychological concepts. It's just trying to give people a really broad taste of all the different types of psychological theories that exist around behavior and around decision making and how we could apply them to our practice as designers and members of design teams. So I think that people who read it don't need to have a background in psychology in any way. I've written it in a way that practitioners should be able to feel very comfortable coming in and saying, okay, and I've used a lot of screenshots to provide, again, like the real life example of how a principle might play out so that people can see, oh, this is something that some web properties that I'm familiar with are already using and this is how they use it. Now I know how to talk about it too because I understand like psych from a psychological perspective why this would be something that works. Cool. Very cool. Well, we will definitely check that out. Cool. And uh, where can our listeners find you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Victor Yako, and that's V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-O-C-C-O. And my website is www.victoryako.com. And if you ever want to send me an email, you can email me at victoryako at gmail.com. And I will respond to you. I always appreciate it when people take time to send a personal message. So I'm willing to take time to do that back. And then one last thing I wanted to mention, David, is that I'll give you, if you're okay with it, a code that would give your listeners 39% off of the book if they order through my publisher's website, which is Manning, is the publisher of my book. And it was just released this week, this as, as we're recording this week, and uh, I'm very excited Amazing. about it. And do we have that code yet, or we'll, we'll publish it on the website? I can give it to you now. There's one. Are you ready? It's SMA which is the letter S, the letter M, the letter A, and then my last name, which is Yako, Y-O-C-C-O. -C -C and that's good for 39% off if you enter it on Manning's website. And I'll give you that code and a link to the book on Manning. And it's also available for purchase over Amazon. And I know that they have uh, different price points over time as well. So Cool. We'll link to everything on the, on the blog post on HackingUI.com. And Victor, this has been really, really awesome. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, David, and, I uh, love appreciate your time. No problem. Have a great day. This week's episode is brought to you by WooCommerce. WooCommerce is the most popular e-commerce platform in the world, powering more than 30% of all online stores. It's completely free to set up and has no monthly fees. All basic functionality is free and it's certainly more than enough to get you started. 
As you grow or need customizations, you can buy extensions and plugins, and the community is huge. It's built on WordPress, so getting started is as simple as can be. And what I love most about WooCommerce is that it's open source and fully customizable. You can make your store as unique as you'd like with virtually no limitations. WooCommerce is also perfect for side projects and is one of the tools that we're recommending now to students in the Side Project Accelerator. When I start a project at the beginning, I don't want to waste time. I just want to get something out there quickly. And then as it grows, I can customize and scale it. WooCommerce is perfect because it fits for every stage of the project, and I don't have to waste time changing to another platform later. It's also nice that it integrates with all the major payment gateways, Stripe, PayPal, Amazon, and tons of smaller regional services. And you own your data forever. If you ever decide to leave, there's no risk of losing data or not being able to transfer over your sales information. If you have an online store or are thinking about starting one, check out WooCommerce. Like I said, it's completely free to get started and easy to set up. You have nothing to lose. And if you'd like to purchase any extensions, themes, or plugins for your store, enter the code HackingUI at checkout. You'll get 30% off all your purchases. Again, you don't need to buy anything to get started. It's completely free. But if you want to customize or need some advanced functionality, you have a ton of extensions and plugins to choose from. You'll get 30% off everything with the code HackingUI at checkout. <laughs> Hey everybody, what's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So I just wanted to let you know that first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders and that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast app. And I would invite you to come and listen. And that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions. It's amazing. I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business, will help you with your skills, taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals. So if you're interested in that, I'm there, The Creativepreneur Show, and you can check it out also on YouTube. And you can also just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. I hope to see you around.